Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Show. You're listening to the first and only podcast dedicated to the business of pharmacy. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes and leave us a voice comment from our contact section on the website. You can find all of our episodes at PharmacyPodcast.com. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your co-host in 2017, focused on your career development, Aaron Albert. More on me over at my website, AaronAlbert.com. And again, really excited about having the opportunity and the privilege to attend HIMSS 2017 in Orlando, Florida, a couple of weeks ago now. And shout out to my friend, Kristen Eilenberg, who connected me to tonight's guest, who is... Uh, a rock star, if you will, in healthcare and biohealth informatics. I am so excited to have him on the show because he is really, truly one of the thought leaders in this space. Um, it was an honor to meet him as well at Hims, And uh, one of the projects that he's working on, I wanted to bring him onto the show to talk about because it's directly related to pharmacy. And that's a uh, website or an app called InfoSage, and we'll get into all the details of that in our interview with him. But uh, if you hear his bio, I could go on for hours about all the things that he's done at the intersection of medicine and informatics. And with that, uh, our guest today is Dr. Charles Safran, and he is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and is chief of the division of clinical informatics at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Safran is a primary care internist who has devoted his professional career to improving patient care through the creative use of informatics. Dr. Safran is a faculty member of the Biomedical Informatics Research Program, or BERT, which seeks to train leaders who will help transform tomorrow's healthcare through the creative use of information and communication technology. He's also the past president and chairman of the American Medical Informatics Association. He was previously vice president of the International Medical Informatics Association. He's an elected fellow of both the American College of Medical Informatics and the American College of Physicians. And Dr. Safran is the editor emeritus of the International Journal of Medical Informatics and on the Health on the Net, or HON Foundation Council. He's testified before Congress on health IT. And in terms of his education, he graduated cum laude in mathematics and holds a master's degree in mathematical logic and a doctor of medicine all from Tufts University. So with that, let's get into it. Our guest tonight, Dr. Charles Safran. Well, with that, Dr. Safran, thank you for joining us on the Pharmacy Podcast. It's my pleasure. So let's start with the question I always love to start with. How did you get to where you are today? I suppose sometimes I think I'm a little bit like Forrest Gump in the sense that I frequently found my place find myself being at the right place at the right time. I uh, started as a mathematician, computer scientist in the early 70s, found myself as a research programmer at MIT in the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, then called Project Mac. And I was 
part of a team doing early decision support uh, in, on the computer for patients with cancer and spent a lot of time with clinicians at the New England Medical Center. And I guess at some point I realized that to be effective in healthcare, it was better to be a physician uh, than to be a computer programmer. So that started me on a long detour to go to medical school, train as a resident. Um, and then one day I saw an article in the New England Journal of Medicine called Paper Chase, Self-Service Searching for the Biomedical Literature. This was probably around 1982. And I realized two things. One was that I was never going to have to go to the library again. And the second thing was that the authors of this paper, Dr. Howard Bleich and Warner Slack, who were down the road from where I was a resident in Boston at the Beth Israel Hospital, that those were the people that I wanted to work with. So that was about 1983, and I guess that's sort of how I ended up where I am today. Okay, and so I'd love to ask you the question that I try to ask every informaticist, and what's your definition of informatics, particularly in the realm of healthcare? So I've been partly responsible for developing the clinical subspecialty of clinical informatics. So uh, let me address the narrow domain of clinical informatics, which is where I spend my time. And that's really if the intersection of clinical care of business processes and of information and communication technology. So if you think of the intersection of those three domains, that core is where I define clinical informatics. So it's using communication and information technology to measurably improve patient care. So that's my definition. Okay. And you've been um, around informatics for a long time in healthcare. So what initially attracted you to informatics? Was that was it the computer science background or something else? Yeah, I, I um, was intrigued. I've always been intrigued by the computer uh, or information technology. So even as a fifth or sixth grader, I was building early counting machines. And, you know, it was probably around the time of the Vietnam War, and my particular skill set would have qualified me to be a code cracker uh, for the National Security Agency. This is the area of mathematics that I knew pretty well. And I was just thinking there had to be something better to do with my time in my life than uh, uh, working for the National Security Agency at the time. And um, I was lucky to find this group at MIT that was beginning to apply early artificial intelligence in the medical domain. And I was just sort of fascinated by the idea that uh, we could 
you know, select better treatments, we could do better diagnosis, we could assist physicians and nurses in those days um, with some of the tasks that were really hard for doctors and nurses. So I, I think that was sort of what you know, intrigued me early on about the field. And um, uh, I guess in retrospect, I, I still believe that's true. Okay. And we met at HIMSS 2017. Shout out to Kristen Eilenberg, who is our mutual friend and connected us. So I'm curious, what did you learn at that kind of overwhelming meeting this year, if anything? Well, I, I've been going to HIMSS on and off since about 1994. Okay. And I've watched it grow from a conference that maybe had about 3,000 3, individuals to one today that probably had 30 to 40,000 individuals. So I guess the, the impression I get, and it's hard on a year-to-year -year basis to really see this difference, but if you can take a, a multi-year view, uh, the, the field is slowly becoming of age, I guess, is the way I, I sort of think about it. it. It's certainly overwhelming. It's beyond human scale. And the conference itself seems to be more of a business-to-business -business opportunity than a, a chance to uh, really learn much about um, uh, anything that's sort of breaking in, in the field. But it's certainly an opportunity to sort of see the breadth of the field and it's sort of gratifying to see that in almost every aspect of healthcare now, you can find uh, many companies trying to, and some very successfully trying uh, to, you know, create markets and to uh, solve problems that face our fellow citizens when uh, they get sick or need care. That blows my mind that that meeting was only 3,000 people in the past. I mean, it was over 42,000 this year, which just <laughs> was huge. But um, with that, you know, I try to focus the pharmacy podcast, and obviously most of our listeners are pharmacists, on career development. So how has the addition of clinical informatics added to your career in medicine? And if you had a younger professional in nursing or pharmacy or medicine, come to you about the possibility of informatics, what what suggestions would you have for him or her? Well, first, let me start with an observation. So early on, uh, when I started working in the field, everything was very uh, physician-centric and facility-centric. And in some sense, healthcare, even today, is organized around the convenience of physicians. But through my work, we built uh, all of the computer systems at the Beth Israel Hospital and now the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and ported those systems over to the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And when you looked at how these systems were used, um, you found out that over half of the use of these systems were by nursing, nurses. Okay. And uh, then again, um, you know, pharmacists, laboratory technologists, 
uh, and a whole host of other people that work in the hospital um, were, you know, also heavy users of the system. So while individual physicians were per capita heavy users of the system and had certain tasks that they had, by and large, these clinical computing systems, which are sort of larger than just electronic health records, um, were, um, you know, really quite pervasive and designed for, you know, all workers in healthcare. I'll give you an example. Early on, I built uh, an early uh, electronic health record called the online medical record, which still runs today at the Beth Israel Happiness Medical Center. And one of the first things we did, um, uh, we allowed physicians to write prescriptions on the computer because it was my feeling that early on, before we had full notes, that we had to capture problem lists and medication lists, that if we could start there, we could sort of build out the rest of uh, the electronic health record over time. And we printed the prescriptions on a piece of paper. We got, you know, prescription grade paper and we printed the prescriptions and someone said to me, well, look, the pharmacies just on the other side of the building, couldn't we just uh, send electronically the prescription to the pharmacy? Because they were already using the a computer system in the hospital for inventory control, printing out labels, uh, sort of keeping track of, of prescriptions that were being dispensed to patients. So I said, fine, no problem. Um, so I'm a primary care doctor myself. I built the, you know, the team built the application and we started electronically. Uh, this is probably about 1980. Eight, I would say, in, in time frame, maybe 1986, we started sending electronic prescriptions to the pharmacy. So maybe a month or two passed, and I walked over to the pharmacy uh, to see how things were working. And the first thing I noticed were there were a whole series of bags uh, up on the top shelf, which were prescriptions that had been sent by the computer to the pharmacy uh, they had been dispensed by the pharmacist, and my patients, our patients, had never picked them up. Um, so it's well known by primary care doctors that uh, uh, you know patients don't always uh, uh, do what the doctor tells them, and uh, in spite of us, they they get better. Um, so any event, so first. Um, uh, what I realized was that the pharmacists were sort of annoyed at me because uh, we were interrupting their workflow and all the patients standing online um, uh, to get their to turn in their paper prescriptions and get them uh, filled had to wait while the pharmacists uh, were dealing with these electronic prescriptions that um, uh, were uh, popping up ahead of those people already queued in line. So I, I, you know, I guess I learned that that systems are really complex uh, interactions between 
people and machines and purpose. And so how we went about and how one should go about designing these systems is really uh, part of the uh, art and skill of, of those people who practice clinical informatics. So what I would say to young people who are interested is that despite the fact that it looks like there are a lot of commercial systems out there, you saw 42,000 people trying to buy or sell uh, commercial systems at HIMSS, uh, no one's really solved uh, all the intricacies of how we actually do our work or what's the optimal way for uh, these systems, these systems of humans and computers uh, uh, to, to interact. And moreover, uh, we'll get to this when we talk about InfoSage, um, the locus of care has been shifting for the past several decades from facility-based care uh, into community-based care. And the opportunity for young people uh, to define a career and to work in sort of the way that care will be or should be organized in the future uh, represents a huge challenge and opportunity for young people who are interested in uh, using technology to help transform our, our out-of-control healthcare system. <laughs> so you talked about InfoSage, and that was kind of the uh, big topic that we wanted to discuss in the podcast tonight. So let's get into it. What is InfoSage? So InfoSage is a system, both a website and mobile applications, that are designed to assist families caring for frail elders. So think of it as a private social network or something like Facebook just for a family where um, the family has a, an elder who is over the age of 75 uh, or older and is uh, in need of, who, who has transitions of care. So they go into the hospital, then they come back home, they go to a doctor's office. And if, if you've ever been uh, with a parent when they go to one of these meetings, so people my age, uh, I'm a baby boomer, um, I have a mother-in-law who's now 96. When she goes to an appointment, um, the family would gather up all the uh, pill containers uh, and bring them with her to an appointment. Uh, and the doctor or the nurse would have to sort of sort through with what she's taking. Inevitably, that doesn't uh, correlate with um, the medicines that they have in their electronic health record. And there's this whole laborious process of medical reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So every transition of care um, uh, means that uh, uh, what's the uh, accurate list of medications uh, might or frequently does change. So InfoSage is a series of tools designed to help families um, as um, uh, a loved one ages or is uh, in um, a situation where they need the help of the family. 
And, and where did this idea for InfoSage come from? It really came from personal experience. So I've had uh, 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 four elderly parents um, and three of which have um, died. Uh, and my mother-in-law, who's, as I mentioned, 96, really requires, um, you know, the children, mostly the women in the family, uh, to spend a day a week, two days a week, some time of every day uh, helping to manage uh, a parent if that parent wants to live at home. Uh, so... Uh, it was the, this whole idea of, of, it's not really, it's a burden of love, but it's a burden on families nevertheless. And I should just back up about um, now, about uh, two decades ago, um, I built something called Baby CareLink, which was a internet-based program that allowed mothers and fathers of low birth weight infants to virtually visit the neonatal intensive care unit and to be engaged in the care when their children were uh, having these prolonged hospital stays of a month or two months or, or sometimes longer. And somewhere along the line, I made the observation that the problems at the beginning of life where children, where parents are taking care of children have an analogy to the end of life where um, children then take care of parents at the end of life. So in both instances, uh, originally with uh, a baby care link where we got support from the National Library of Medicine and now with InfoSage, we went to the Agency for Healthcare Quality, and, uh, quali healthcare quality and Research um, and we asked them for money to build a living laboratory so that we could study uh, what were the information needs of families uh, with frail elders. And then more recently, um, uh, asked them to allow us to focus on medication safety for the elders. So that's it's really a, a personal experience, not with the low birth weight infants, but with elder parents uh, who just required an extraordinary amount of time to uh, support them in the homes that they desired to be in. Okay, and you mentioned that InfoSage is a series of tools. So can you kind of walk our listeners through, because pharmacists, I'm sure, would be interested in this as well to share with their multi-generational families. What kind of tools are inside InfoSage? So, um, so there, uh, I guess, um, uh, three or four different components to InfoSage. Um, we had this idea that, um, first of all, that families needed to uh, communicate uh, amongst themselves. Um, and there was this need. And currently, uh, you know, if you have someone who you're caring for and you have brothers and sisters or grandchildren or others and you want to keep them informed, you either have to send email notes around to folks or you have to use the telephone. Um, families are quite spread out in 
um, uh, the current time. Uh, and we can track that with with uh, how our system is used. So we, um, uh, you know, created uh, essentially a microblog, a uh, an ability to have to post uh, updates to um, members of the family. I should say that uh, just to, so you're aware of the lingo that I use uh, or that my team uses, the center of a care network is called a keystone. So that's our 75 or, you know, our, our uh, I think our mean, our median age of our um, uh, uh, living laboratory right now is about 83. But so the the elder is, we, we refer to as a keystone. Okay. Uh, then we've developed uh, permissioning uh, to allow one or more people to be designated proxies if they want. And the only thing that a proxy can do or a keystone can do besides look at and put all the information in if they so desired would be to invite other people into the network. So you can be invited in as a caregiver or you can be invited in as a participant. And the main difference between a participant or a caregiver is that the caregivers can see medications and um, participants can see everything but medications. So when we ran focus groups early on, um, there was a lot of sensitivity around privacy. Don't spy on me. Uh, I don't want to you know, share this information with my grandchildren, but if I am brought to the hospital, I, of course, want everybody to... Uh, you know, have helped me get the correct care. Uh, so there's both this nature of wanting to keep some things private or have control over who can look at what. So we've built all that in the background. Okay. So back to, you know, so there's a, a an update, essentially a, a microblog, sort of like a Twitter with your family, I guess, would be the way you might think about that, although it... it exists in this private cloud that's HIPAA compliant uh, and stored on the Amazon uh, web web services uh, in, in their cloud. Um, then there's a task list. So one of the challenges for, and I don't mean to be sexist, but it's usually the daughter in the family who's um, the primary manager of, uh, of the parent. Mm -hmm. um, her challenge in life is to get any other sibling or any other friend to do anything uh, because she's taken on all the burden herself. And so whether it's picking up groceries for mom, uh, who's going to take mom to the hairdresser, mom's got a doctor's appointment, is anybody available because I'm going away on vacation, uh, all those kinds of logistics of life. Uh, are really quite uh, time-consuming for families. And so uh, being able to post on a calendar, uh, you know, who's going to bring mom to the Thanksgiving dinner? Uh, you know, we're in Boston tomorrow. There's a big snowstorm that we're expecting. Is anybody able to check on mom to see if her heat's working? What about if the power goes out? Et cetera, et cetera. So there's a task list. The uh, there's a lot of um, 
personal information about who the elder is. One of the observations we observed early on is that when a 90-year-old comes to the hospital at 2 o'clock in the morning, um, the 30-year-olds taking care of mom or dad really view mom or dad as just work. Yet they lit a very rich life. They had interesting occupations. They had hobbies. Uh, they have families. They have support systems. And so we wanted to be able to convey some of that. Uh, the third thing, the fourth thing we have is is a curated search. Um, so, uh, you know, if you asked uh, uh, what's covered by Medicaid or is a... Uh, uh, wheelchair covered by Medicaid. And if you just type that into Google, you get thousands of responses, uh, if not millions of, of hits on various websites of people trying to sell you things. So we worked with our uh, gerontologists uh, and the Health on the Net Foundation in Switzerland to uh, get qualified, good information and have the Google-like search restricted to websites that had been, if you will, curated by experts in the field. Okay. Um, and uh, so we, we sort of filter out a lot of the ads. And then the thing that, um, you know, we're, we're here to talk about is uh, tools around uh, medication management and medication safety. So... Uh, we have tools for um, putting medication in. We use a medication database from the National Library of Medicine called RxNorm. Mm -hmm. uh, we use their herbal uh, database as well, which I think is slightly different than RxNorm. Uh, we link to pictures of pills um, and try to make all this as simple as possible. We try to uh, capture, since the database RxNorm has reasons for why someone takes a medicine, to sort of ask the family or the um, uh, elder themselves. Uh, so many of our elders directly use the system, uh, and it's it's not their baby boomer kids, but but it's uh, they themselves who are uh, the principal users. Uh, why are you taking this medicine? Um, and we have both um, standard reasons and then other reasons that people can comment on so that um, what you get is an accurate, potentially up-to-date medication list um, as you're putting in the medicines or if you um, put in a new medicine, uh, it does drug-drug interactions, uh, checks drug-drug interactions. So you, it groups medicines by the class that they're on. So if you have several medicines that uh, might uh, affect, I don't know, your cognition or are psychoactive, they get sort of lumped. They can be lumped together so you can see that you're on several medicines of the same kind. Um, so we're 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 doing that. And then in addition, uh, and and uh, you know that medication list can be emailed uh, to your physician when you're in the emergency room. You can just call it up on your iPhone since it's stored in the cloud. Okay. Um, anybody in the family who has been authorized to have 
access to InfoSage, they can observe the same medication list, uh, um, you know, at any time. And right now, the team is working on this. Isn't is only operational in prototype, but we're working on uh, a fire interface. Um, uh, so that's a fast healthcare information retrieval standard. It's sort of a new HL7, if you will, uh, so that we can uh, pull medication information directly out of you know, commercial systems like Epic or Cerner. Uh, I think we work with both their sandboxes at the moment uh, or our own hospital system. Uh, so that we can auto-populate at the time of discharge, at least initially, um, you know, the medication list. It's my belief, and I think um, maybe your your listeners might agree, that unless we provide tools to families and to people themselves to manage their own medication lists, we can't really expect to have a, a source of truth somewhere out in the ether. It's just not going to happen um, because we visit clinicians too infrequently. We take uh, over-the-counter medicines that, uh, such as Zantac that used to be, when I was in training, a prescription medicine. Now it's over-the-counter, but it in and of itself interacts with... Um, <laughs> you know, hundreds of uh, medicines that people take. Um, yet when we ask someone, are you on a medicine uh, or what do you take? Uh, what medicines do you take? They don't list it because it hasn't, you know, been part of how they uh, manage their own medicines at home. So that's sort of our our goal. Um, and uh, I think that's a I mean, there there's some other functions that that uh, InfoSage has, but that's probably the uh, uh, sort of a mouthful so far. So, is there a cost associated with it, and where can people find it to try it out? So it's free; it's government supported. Okay. Uh, and uh, we're putting it in the public domain. Uh, our goal is to try to understand uh, what the information needs are of of families and how they use uh, these kinds of tools. Um, it's at infosagehealth.org. So I-N-F-O-S-A-G-E health, one word, dot org. And it's available for free. Uh, you can use your uh, Facebook or Google log on uh, in order to get on and you're off and running. And the landing page uh, has some videos and more thorough explanation of, of what kinds of functions are there and, and how to use the system. And the app is available in iTunes and is it um, on Android as well? It is. Um, my programmers all use Android and they forced me to build the Android app. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, it is, you know, it's sort of interesting, um, uh, sort of an aside, but in the field of elder care, people think um, that the Medicare definition of elder, which is 65 and older, 
um, is the appropriate cutoff point. So if you look at the literature about how people use technology, you have people, you know, uh, all lumped in over the age of 65. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, I find myself in that category of people over the age of 65 now, and I no longer feel that's old. Uh. Um, <laughs> so it's it's actually hard to understand um, what kind of technology platforms are, um, you know, being used by people who are older. Um, my feeling is that the form factor of uh, a smartphone, uh, whether it be uh, iOS or Android, is sort of small for uh, people with either poor um, eyesight or um, perhaps don't have the uh, motor skills, arthritis or tremor uh, that would make um, a larger screen, either a tablet or a, uh, a full computer screen, um, easier for them to navigate. And as best I understand, only about 15% of people over the age of 75 in the United States have smartphones. That's from the Pew and the Internet uh, Research Group. But uh, as we all sort of age in place, uh, more of us who are 65 will eventually be 75 and um I hope to be still using my iPhone when I'm 75. So um, we we um, do um, uh, you know support both both platforms. I, I'll say one other interesting thing about um, what we understand from InfoSage at this point. Uh, I think I mentioned that families are sort of spread out. Um, you know, we're based here near Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and our catchment area is both to the west and the south of, of Boston. When we look at how InfoSage is used, we find family members in uh, New York, in Los Angeles, uh, in Chicago, uh, in western Massachusetts, on Cape Cod. Uh, so it's sort of interesting. Um, uh, I won't ask you how close you live to where your parents uh, live now, but but uh, my parents lived in New York City, uh, and I was here in Boston. So I think it's you know, the American family has has spread out, and so tools like this um, help engage families uh, and allow people to participate, more people to participate in um, uh, someone's complex care if that's desired. Yeah, that's great. And to your point, there is a lot of digital nomadism going on, and particularly with Gen X and the millennials now, and a lot of folks are moving around a lot. Um, they don't even necessarily own homes. So this is a great app and tool, I think, or body of tools that families, to your point, can stay connected no matter where they are in the world geographically, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, we have surprisingly, uh, and I'm not quite sure we understand it, but um, our, our app is uh, accessed from um, pretty seriously from about 19 different countries at this point, uh, from as far away as Qatar. Uh, so sometimes it has to do with when uh, one of us gives a talk about InfoSage or someone's at a meeting in the United States and hears us talk about it, they go home and try it. 
but um, uh, yeah, it's it's available worldwide, uh, not only in the United States, although it it is only in English. Our our immediate plans are to develop a Spanish uh, version of it, as well as a Portuguese version. Uh, we're interested in working with some colleagues in Brazil. So we're we're hopeful to make this multilingual as as, uh, as we move along. Well, excellent. It's been so interesting talking to you, Doctor. And before we go, can you share with uh, our listeners where they can find more about you online? Yeah. So my division at Harvard has a website uh, called HMFPinformatics.org. So uh, that's Harvard Medical Faculty Physicians, you know, HMFPinformatics.org. Perfect. Dr. Charles Saffron, thank you for being part of the Pharmacy Podcast. And are you ready for our speed round? I guess. Okay. Number one, what books are you reading right now? So I mostly listen to books at this point. Um, but the one I'm listening to right now is called Originals by Adam Grant, and it's sort of a business psychology book, if you will, about uh, uh, what makes some people uh, be original thinkers and how they uh, bring their ideas to market. What podcasts are you listening to right now? So I'm a Big fan of uh, NPR, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And that's, that's probably my favorite podcast. If you could choose one word to describe the U.S. healthcare system right now, what word would that be? <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, there is no system, but uh, probably either fractured or dysfunctional. What area of healthcare informatics or clinical informatics are you fascinated by right now? So my passion is around um, trying to make the least utilized resource in healthcare, that being the patient or their family, um, more empowered with the kinds of informatics tools that we can build. What's your best time management tip? So in a funny way, uh, at least at this point in my life, um, the best time management tip I can give um, people is to learn how to say no. Uh, that um, it's, it's important to, do, to learn how to do one thing well, uh, one thing um, to, and, and, and in order to do that one thing, you can't spread yourself so thin that you just don't have time to do anything well. So learn what's not important and learn how to say no. And last but not least, what's the best career advice you ever received? <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going to say uh, uh you know, it was it, it was to stay focused, um, but in a funny way, um, I sort of remember a senior doctor coming down to my office once, and he said, "Charlie, uh, learn how to feed your family first, meaning, uh, you know, pay attention to your career." Uh, 
so don't don't try to do everything. So it's it's I, I think it's a little bit of of stay focused. Well, with that, Dr. Charles Safran, thank you for being part of the Pharmacy Podcast. And you must promise me that you'll come back and share more insights, particularly around healthcare and clinical informatics. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Pharmacy Podcast. This episode was brought to you by my new book, The She He Says Guide to Mentoring. With one of my own mentors, Dr. David Horst, he and she provide insights on how to set up mentoring programs for women and provide general insights on how you can get your own board of advisors. Log on to erinalbert.com forward slash books and you'll find it for sale there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.